He is risen. Yeah. Man, what a beautiful day. What a beautiful day. I just love Easter. Love Easter. It's just what a great, great time. You know, uh, like in, in Israel, like there's not seasons and whatnot, sort of like, like, like we have as far as like the timing of the seasons go or anything. So it's such a, I think, a grace and a gift from God to live in this climate, in this place where Easter and springtime come together. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's a double blessing in, in my mind of just this beautiful experience of newness at the same time that we're celebrating the reason that there's newness, you know, because Jesus is alive. And uh, man, what a, what a beautiful connection that God has given to us by his grace. Um, we're really glad you're here with us today. If this is your first time with us, um, or if you're not regularly with us, we, we welcome you. We're really glad that you're here. And um, hope that you're blessed by, by God's presence today. Um, take your Bibles. I want to spend a little bit of time in God's Word. Um, take your Bibles into John chapter 18. If you want to do a really interesting scripture study at some point, take your Bible and take some time and go through the Gospels. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But skip all of the black print. Just read the red letters. Like, don't even read around the red letters to see what it is that Jesus is, is referencing. Um, I know that that's, like, against every hermeneutic you've ever been taught um, to not discover the context. No one's telling you to not discover the context. I'm a big fan of context. But uh, what I am saying is that if you take the red letters and you just read the red letters, it is a, it is a mind-blowing thing. Um, because even though you don't see Jesus, like, necessarily responding to the context— how often does Jesus actually respond to the context, right? He gets asked a question, asked a question, then what does he do? He, he asks another question. He takes the context that was given to him, and he actually makes a better one out of it. And so it's really interesting to read, uh, to read the red letters, just reading the red letters, and to, say, and to just line out the experience of Christ while he was here on earth, because um, he is so proactive in the way that he goes after things, you know? Um, if you're f any familiar at all with me, you know that I say all the time that one of our issues as the church goes is that we react to situations instead of being active in them. God calls us to be active. He calls us to take the first step, not to react. You know, uh, some Christians should not be surprised at the fact that the world is broken and sinful. You know what I mean? Like, oh, duh. Uh, you know, I'm surprised at the amount of sinners who are surprised at sinners that sin. Um, that's what sinners do. Sinners sin. The world's full of sinners, so there's lots of sin in it. And the church reacting to sin is absolutely pointless. The whole point was that Jesus did not react to sin when he went to the cross. Jesus actively engaged that, which would free you and I from sin. And then he actively rose from the dead, conquering sin, right? This is not reactive at all. This is a complete action, and God calls us to live in that. That's what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. Um, today in John 18 and 19 and 20, we're going to examine some of the, some of the red letters, particularly two of them, um, because it's a there's a biblical correlation in place here to our Easter experience today that I want to sort of draw out and, um, ask us some good, hard questions, um, to look at as far as our own relationship with God and uh, what it means for us to, to know him, um, and to be in relationship with him the way that he designed us to be. So let's pray together. God, we, um, we come to you this morning seeking your face and wanting to know you more, wanting to experience you more. God, our hearts are just filled with joy today 
because of your victory, because of this day, Easter. Um, you call us to this place of, of victory in your name. And we stand as people who can live in that victory. Now, I mean, we, we fail at that so many times, and so often, you know, it's um, a place of victory is, is, is the rarity as, as opposed to the norm. Um, so thank you for your grace that continually keeps coming back and finding us and drawing us back to where it is that you desire us to be. We believe, God, that you are the active God, like you are an active God. You are not reactive, and you call us into an active engagement with you. This is not a static relationship. Like, this is real, and we're with you, and, and it's a beautiful thing to be in your presence. So, God, we come to you today, and we ask you to speak to us through your word. We ask to you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit, believing, God, that, um, that you have something for each of us. So open our hearts, God. Open our spirits. Holy Spirit, come into the quiet place inside of each of us. In this quiet spot that we're in, you know, when we come together, we come together as fallen humans, and one thing that fallen humans do is we, we self-protect, right? We have, we have walls that we like to put up around ourselves, places that are wounded or that we don't want to give to God. Let's take a little bit of time just in the quietness of your own heart as you sit there quietly with God. You know, the walls become so normal that you don't realize they're there. You know, I think we all have walls in our heart that are just, be, they become our norm. So in the quietness of your heart, ask God to show you what those things are. They very well might start with the word self. Self-protection, self-deception, self-judgment, self-righteousness. Let the Holy Spirit point them out to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the gentle way in which you expose our walls to us, in which you so show us the ways that we build, that actually that we're reacting. We're reacting to our wounds, we're reacting to our stories, we're reacting to our past, we're reacting to um, fear, we're reacting to a loss of control. We're reacting to addictions and abuse and deceptions. And so we build walls. But God, before you, there can be no walls. So we come before you now via your word. We ask you to expose ourselves to ourselves and to allow your grace to wash over us. Draw people to yourself today, God, as we seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, be, uh, before I was in the ministry vocational, I, I grew up as a construction worker. My granddad's a carpenter, and I went to work for a plasterer um, when I was in high school, and so I, I did plastering and put myself through college doing plastering, and um, plastering's an old concept, you know, houses these, made are, these days are made out of drywall, which is just the, uh, uh, 
the wussy way to get your walls, you know, done. But it's also a heck of a lot cheaper. Uh, old school plaster, right? If you have an old house, you've seen this before. If a chunk of your plaster falls out, what do you see in there? You know, it's horse hair, right? There's horse hair in there. And so um, as a plaster, plastering something of a, of a dying art. And so we would get called into all kinds of crazy old house situations. Um, so uh, the way the plaster works is you got a wall and you put some kind of a structure on your wall. In the old, old days, they used to put wood lath strips on the, on the wall, and so some of your old houses will have those, and they started making rock lath, which is about three by five uh, things that they would tack up, and then you would brown coat it, right? Brown coat's the key to this story. Um, brown coat is this, it's the same, it's made out of the same stuff as, as, as drywall, gypsum, um, but you would mix it up in massive quantities because because uh, brown coat would go on the wall an inch to an inch and a half thick. I mean, it, it was really, really thick. And sure enough, you would throw horse hair in that. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff in your old houses. Horse hair, clam shells, uh, uh, pig's teeth. I, I mean, a- everything. Uh, you would, like, when they got done butchering, they would just take the bones and crush them up and throw them in the plaster. It was something to hold things together. You know, and so there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can find in this. Well... We were brown coating one day, and like I said, this stuff goes on an inch to an inch and a half thick. And suddenly one of the laborers comes running in and s- yells, stop. And uh, so everybody's sort of, generally someone's injured when that happens, you know. And uh, he goes, I lost my ring in the brown coat. And uh, <laughs> he l- dude lost his wedding ring in the brown coat. And um, now my boss is a, uh, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a great businessman, he's a great uh, uh, plaster, and, and he, he's a believer, uh, godly man, one of the most like Jesus men that I, I've ever been around, and uh, so this, it's, it's funny, maybe your boss is like this too, like some days he'd be like, ah, screw it, we gotta get the job done, and off we go, other days he's like, he'd be just like, like hit to the core, right, with compassion by this, like, oh, well this is one of those days, like, he just dis- decided we had to find this ring, and so we started going all over the wall that we had just gotten done, because brown coat takes a while to cure, and we started going all over this wall, just just ripping, you know. And we, we had done this for about five minutes, and Dave declares, he's like, oh, uh, we didn't pray. And so we had to pray, and um, we, the laborers were outside, we were inside, so we sort of met in the middle when there was all this gravel. Uh, and we, we prayed, and, s- and Dave brought everybody together, and, and uh, we prayed. Dave opened his eyes and said, there it is. And there, and there it was. It was right there. And, uh, you know, we, we had to go back and fix a lot of this stuff. But the, uh, like, the <laughs> right there on the ground in front of us the whole time, didn't end up in the brown coat, at least not that we know of. Or Jesus just magically took it out of the brown coat, cleaned it off, and put it on the gravel right under Dave's, which I prefer to believe because there's no way that that was the case. So, anyway, have you ever had an experience like that, you know what I mean, where, where, like, there was just something that you absolutely had to find. And it might not have been a physical thing. Um, you know, a, a lot of us have been on a quest for a lot of other things as well. You know, physical things are where we most, most find things. You know, kids have been interesting experiences with losing things because they lose things that are precious to them, that are precious to, you know, nobody else. That at least that, that's how we think of it, you know, because it's so of little value. You know, but really, what's value when it comes down to it? Um, 
I mean, value is what's near and dear to you, right? I mean, value is what's, what's near and dear and, 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 and close to you. And so it's got, it's got very, very little to do with the actual price tag on an item. It's got very much to do with what that item represents. You know, if your house was on fire, what would you grab? That's the things of value, right? When we think about, like, seeking, when we think about looking for things, when we think about what is of value to us and the price that we are willing to spend in order to find it, you know, Dave lost a lot of materials that day and some good labor time making this thing happen. And if you totaled it all up, as I thought back about it, as I thought back on it this week, between materials, four guys scraping off brown coat that we had already put on that was now unusable again, you know, I mean, I bet he lost a few hundred bucks. It's just, just, but this guy's ring mattered to him, right? So, so, so what seeking that which is of value to us has very little to do with what it is that the actual price tag on something is. It's got very, very much to do about with what the item that is being sought means to the one seeking it. Right? You hear what I'm saying? It's got very much to do with what the item being sought means to the one that is seeking it. The idea of seeking is one of the overlooked themes of Scripture. The word seek is used 320-some times in the Bible. And it's used extensively in all kinds of situations. But in almost every one of those situations, there is something spiritually significant that is going on in that seeking. Right? Jesus tells three quick stories about seeking, right? right? There's ten women. One of them lost a precious coin. She went and got all of her friends. They all came to her house. They spent the whole rest of the day to find that coin. Hundred sheep. The shepherd lost one. He went out into the dangerous night to see what he could find. I mean, seeking is so important when it comes to Scripture. Uh, take your text and go to John 18. It's important to remember that uh, so much of what Jesus says, we think of as being from, from Jesus. Um, and it was, don't get me wrong. Um, but Jesus, more often than not, when he talks, he's quoting something from the Old Testament. You will find him, his teachings and the things that he says coming more from the Old Testament than anywhere else. This theme of seeking in the Old Testament is huge. And so Jesus is using, Jesus, as his life comes to an end, as his life is winding down, Jesus begins using Old Testament metaphors and words and thoughts more than anything else. How many of you before the Tenebrae service on Good Friday knew that Jesus was quoting Psalm 31 when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? I mean, that was absolutely purposeful. It is finished is a phrase from the Day of Atonement. Right? I thirst is what David said in Psalm 42. Right? I mean, the, the, the amount of significance that Jesus starts drawing between the, from the Old Testament and bringing his, these words into his life as his life is winding down is very, very interesting, which is why we're not, I'm not at all surprised when we see what Jesus says here in John 18. Take a look. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken. Of those you gave me, I have, not, I have, I have lost not one. When Jesus... So does Jesus have any doubt in his mind who these guys have come for? Is this an honest question? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not. It's a leading question. Right, there, there, there's no question as to what's going on. Jesus knows exactly what is taking place. I think he is honestly surprised that Judas kissed him. Like, when I read that from that, uh, that part in Luke, when he says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? Like, man, that's, of all the betrayal accounts in the gospel, that's the one that hits me most. Like, there's, I mean, he could have just stood and pointed and said, you know, it's the guy in the white bathrobe with the blue sash and the long hair and the beautifully trimmed beard, um, which is what all Jewish men wore in those days. Um, <laughs> but he didn't. He walked up to him and kissed him. I didn't think that Jesus, I don't think Jesus saw that one coming. So John doesn't record that, though. John does record this, this statement, whom do you seek? Twice Jesus asks it. Whom do you seek? Like I said, this is a big theme, right? This is a big theme. Let me rehearse just some of the importance of this theme in the Old Testament. One thing I have asked, this is David, one thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Just a few verses down in verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is writing about the restoration of Israel. And what Israel has coming for it. Maybe this verse is familiar to you. It's a very famous verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. And here's verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, just a, few, uh, just a few chapters over in the book of Hosea, in 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Right? Just a few books over from that in the book of Amos, in chapter 5. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, right? Because Bethel's where worship took place for Abraham. Do not seek Gilgal, right? Don't seek Gilgal because that's where worship took place for David. Or cross over to Beersheba, where Solomon would have gone. For Gilgal shall go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Seek the Lord and live. You see this again and again in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, uh, knock and it will be open to you. Seek 
and you will find. Right? Ask, it will be given to you. Jesus says, seek my kingdom first. And its righteousness and all these other things that you think that you want will be added to you. And then it comes to John 18, and I've just jumped over, no, 310 others. John 18, and Jesus comes out with the phrase, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Now, to a Jewish audience, this would have been a really obvious statement, right? It would have been a really obvious answer. We seek the Messiah. We want the Messiah. We want the Christ. Jesus has been telling them the entire time, I am the Christ, right? I think one of the most offensive things that happens in Jesus' betrayal and, and trials when they, they, uh, uh, they beat him and, and they mock him and they put him up on the cross and they say, if you're the son of God, come down from there and then we'll believe in you, right? Because Jesus' whole ministry had been, these people only want me for what I can give them. They only want bread because I fed 5,000 people. You know, they just, want to, they just want a sign from me. And people keep asking for more signs, more signs, more signs. Come off that cross and we'll believe in you. And that is just so deeply offensive. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek, Jesus says? Whom do you seek? And he's not asking them, which one of us 12 standing here would you like to arrest first? This is a purposeful question. This is a deep question. This is a deeply spiritual question that is not misapplied and being asked of you and I today as well. Whom do you seek? What are you looking for? What do you want? It's not, it's not what do you seek. It's not how do you seek. It's not where do you seek. Whom? This is about a person. At its core, this is about a person. Every one of us in this room is having our intimacy needs met by a person. That person might be yourself. And you'll be the first to testify that it falls short. It might be someone else. It might be a picture of a relationship that we think that we want. But when it comes down to it, intimacy is met only personally. And intimacy will be met. Every human will find a way to have their need for a deep knowing and being known relationship met. Whom do you seek? What, wh who is it that satisfies you? Who do you seek? You know, the red letters, they keep going in John. You can, well, I guess I can go back to it. The red letters keep going in John. Jesus, I mean, a, a lot of commentators say Jesus doesn't say very much. I think Jesus actually says a lot. He says a lot without saying many words. Well, Manny says a lot. You know, he works himself down through the trial and, th and through, the, through the betrayal and the trial and this mockery that's brought against him. And there's all these poignant statements, right? There's all these poignant statements. And his statements, more often than not, they have to do with that person. Like, Jesus is not concerned about this big missional thing for which he came to redeem the nation of Israel. You know, at this point in time, he's engaging Pilate for who Pilate actually is. And he leads Pilate on a path to Pilate asking the question, what is truth? You know, he's standing before Caiaphas, and they're saying, do you call yourself the king of the Jews? You've said so. Like, I'm listening to what you're telling me, and this is what you're saying. All along the way, Jesus 
is exposing to them what those people are actually seeking. And then Jesus is on the cross, and Jesus says these seven phrases from the cross, and then he dies. And the red letters stop. Right? Look at chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to, fulfilled, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, if you glance from chapter 19, verse 30, back all the way to chapter 18, verse 1, when the betrayal first started, right, you're going to see an insane amount of red letters. And if you go before that to chapter 17, 16, 15, and 14, it's almost 100% red letters. And then they stop. And if you read the book of John in one sitting, probably how it's meant to be read, by the way, if you read it in, in one sitting, let this whole story capture you, I mean, you will notice that. You will, he, I mean, he is just, you can see it in the book of John, Jesus' emotional fervency becomes so much stronger as he's walking this path to the grave. And I think that when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he becomes so acutely aware of his own death that is coming, right? That he just kicks into high gear in chapters 13, 14, all the way through 17. And you just see so many red letters, so much of what Jesus most earnestly wants his disciples to grab a hold of. Remain in the vine. Stay in the vine. Don't separate yourself from the vine. Don't be scared. I'm going to send a comforter for you, to you. And this comforter, he's going to take care of you. He's going to lead you into all the truth that it is that you need. By the way, all the things you've seen me do, I'm telling you right now that you're going to do even better things. You're going to do bigger and greater things than anything that you've seen me do. Don't be afraid that I'm going to leave you. If your heart's troubled, don't let your heart be troubled. You believed in God. You can believe in me. I'm going home to heaven, but I'm going to go there and make a home for you where you can join me too. So stay faithful. Understand who it is that I am. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Don't let anybody ever rob that from you. I'm pouring all of this into you because you're my disciples. The world's going to hate you, but they're only going to hate you because they hated me. You have to stay strong in your connection to me. And then he goes to God in chapter 17, and he begs God on our behalf, God, keep my sheep safe. Keep them together. Make them one as we are one. And then it all turns back to us, right? I mean, it's, it's teaching, 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 Jesus pouring in. Next question, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? And Jesus walks through his betrayal and his trial and he declares finishing this truest day of atonement it is finished and the red words that have been just taking up all of these pages in the book of John the red letters end I was talking with our kids on uh, on Friday after the Tenebrae service about um, you know just the impact of it about the impact of Jesus death and um 
you know, one of my kids uh, asked a, a really good question, which is, you know, um, Jesus rose from the dead, though, right? You know, and the answer was, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But if you, and this is what we talked about, if you put yourself in their position, I mean, everything was gone, right? I mean, can you imagine the amount of despair that you would have felt as a follower of Christ? To have believed in this one so deeply, to have believed in this kingdom that he's spoken of so strongly, yeah, to misunderstand it, surely, um, but, but to have believed so deep and been to attached so fondly, and then for him to die, and for all of that, all those hopes and dreams to go away. I don't know about you, but I can completely identify with Peter. Jesus is dead. What am I going to do? I'm going to go fish. Why? Well, it's over. It's done. So now you're saying to yourself, this is the most depressing Easter message I've ever heard. <laughs> sort of. But not really. Because, well, let me make a point of application, and then I'll get to the happy thoughts. Okay. Um, I mean, honestly, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, look me in the face and, and listen to this. Whom do you seek? Who do you seek? If you're here today and, and you don't know Christ, who is it that you are seeking? Because you're seeking someone, and you're not seeking something. You're not dumb enough to know that, that to actually think that your career is going to fill that dark, deep, lonely spot in here. Or that your paycheck is going to do it, or that your addiction is going to do it. Or that building whatever nice little family system it is that you want to build is going to do it. I refuse to believe that. Uh, you and I both know that's a bunch of baloney. Deep down in here, things are not right. Deep down in here, there is a striving for something that you cannot get to. And you don't know what that is. The question is not, what are you seeking? The question is not about your family or your career or how you choose to anesthetize your feelings through whatever addiction it is that you choose. The question is not about these things at all. The question is about who who are you seeking? You are seeking someone. And again, if you're seeking yourself, you and I both know that that's going to lead us nowhere. Honestly, does the world need more people who are full of themselves? It's so easy for us to look around at those ar around us and say, oh, they're all self-seeking. You know, but, yeah, you know, so are we, so am I. Who do you seek? When it really comes down to it, who do you seek? And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're going, I'm a Jesus seeker. What about those walls? What about those walls? I hope that God revealed them to you so that you could drop them for this time together. But what are you going to do when you leave? What are you going to do when that wound gets stepped on? What are you going to do on, when, that, when that memory speaks again to you who you aren't in the eyes of Christ? What idols do you hold on to 
that Jesus cannot have? What pieces of what it is that you do or that you are, whom are you seeking? Whom do you seek? So, now to the happy thoughts. The happy thoughts are this. That's a terrible phrase. The red letters don't end with John 19, verse 30. But look at the way that they start back up again. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen claws lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Can you... A couple of things. Number one, John was in better shape than Peter. <laughs> you know, Peter tells us that, or history, church history tells us that Peter was just this, this bulking, like, muscle of a man. I mean, a fisherman's fisherman, you know. I mean, he could pull in that whole catch of 157 fish by himself, you know. So I just always thought, uh, John, but, uh, you know, so I'm picturing this in my head. There's a tomb. John's in better shape than Peter, so he gets there first. And like most of us, you don't just run into a mausoleum, you know? Like, don't do that. That, that, this is, that is not, A, respectful, or, uh, and in this day, when superstition is so deeply heavy regarding the dead, you just don't do that. You know, like, it's, ye, John's no dummy. And so John sort of stops and, and looks in. Peter, I'm picturing this, Peter's a good 300 yards behind at this point, and, uh, is on a dead sprint. He sees John pull up, um, which, and stop at the tomb. And Peter just, boom, you know, right, right through, blows right past him, huffing and puffing into the tomb, and is seeing this spectacle of these claws that are lying here, and this washcloth-ish, washcloth-ish thing laying over here. Now it's important for you to know that you don't take a dead body in these days and lay it in the tomb and then drape it with some white blankets, right? This was the Middle East. This is an embalming procedure, right? There would have been chemicals, and this would have been wrapped. Jesus would have been wrapped the exact way he was wrapped when he was born, actually, interestingly enough. And it would have been wrapped completely tightly like a mummy all the way up, all the way up to his, all the way to his head. And his head may or may not have been wrapped. We don't really know that. We do know that there was a cloth put over it. Um, this word here, for, uh, oh, oh, the ESV really hits it right. Um, uh, the face cloth with Jesus, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That, that, that is the word. There's another word for, like, crunch or, or gather together. Like if Jesus' hand had come up and just gone, and thrown it away, you know, it would have said that. No, this is the word folded, and it absolutely means folded. Like Jesus took this off, he folded it, and he put it over here, neatly. Jesus was very neat. This is what I tell my children. Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus was very neat, and so should you be, you know. Um, 
Can you imagine being Jesus? No, you can't, but let's picture it for a moment. You're dead. And while Jesus was dead, um, he's warring four souls in hell. Like, we know that. And there's a lot of church discrepancy as to what's going on or where that's going on or how that's going on. We do know that Jesus is very much a warrior while he's dead. But can you imagine being, being like Jesus' body and thinking in yourself absolutely nothing because you're dead? And then, bam, you're alive again. You know, like it's like, like the heart that hadn't beat for three days goes boom for the first time. Right? The brain that hadn't had a thought for three days clicks in like, oh, there is existence. Right? The eyes that hadn't opened, boom, open. The lungs that hadn't filled with air for three days, take it in. I mean, I, I just can't even fathom or, or that what a spot. You know how God did that the first time? He breathed into Adam the breath of life. Right? If you're going to breathe into someone the breath of life, where do you get? You get right here, right? I mean, it's a kiss when it comes down to it. That's what God does for his son. And, and, and he breathes back life into his son. And Jesus doesn't even want these clothes. So he just completely leaves them and folds the napkin nicely and moves on. This is what Peter, you know, just brashly runs into. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, this is Mary Magdalene, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Just for what it's worth, this is, for, as far as I can remember and think, this is the only time in Scripture that angels have appeared to a human, and the human did not respond with fear. Which is just really interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I just think it's cool. Okay. Um, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. A group of men with the harshest and blackest of evil intentions, come to Jesus in the garden, and Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? 
a woman with the most tender and pierced heart by this situation, who is a deep follower of Jesus and who loves him, sees Jesus and he asks her the exact same question. The blackest night, the brightest day. The question is, whom are you seeking? Whom do you seek? It's a question for every person in here today. Who are you looking for? A lot of us use seeking as an excuse to not get anywhere. A lot of us say that we're looking for something in order to disconnect and to disengage. And you can do this about just about anything. You know, you can say you're looking for the right career. In the long time, I'm gonna, in the meantime, I'm going to be miserable on this one. You can say I'm looking for the right church. In the meantime, you can either not be a part of a local church or you can be miserable at the one that you're at. Generally, it's about misery when it comes down to it. Um, is, is generally the other choice that we tend to make. Um, you know, so, so we, we tend to take seeking to a very, like, um, personally selfish extreme. Jesus makes it very clear. Yahweh makes it very clear. If you seek, you'll find. If you seek, you'll find. The one who seeks, finds. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, the door will be open. Jeremiah 29. Seek me, and you will find me. Condition? When you seek me with all your heart. And that's why you're not finding anything. You're not finding because you won't give Jesus your heart. And it can be about anything. It can be about the state of your marriage, right? It can be about your overall peace quotient in your life. You have no rest in your soul. And you tell God, I'm seeking rest and peace in my soul. And he's saying, well, then give me your heart. And you're saying, well, that's just going to create more habit, God. I think I'll hold on to it. And there we are stuck. We actually get to the point where our wounds and the things that we say that we hate about ourselves and the experiences that came upon us that we did not want and did not ask for actually define us. And we tell God that we're seeking answers to that which has most deeply hurt us, but what has most deeply hurt us actually has become our reality. And we will no sooner let go of that than we will jump over the moon. And so we're all over here telling God we want to seek him, and he says, then I want to heal that. And you say, no, I want you to heal this. You could just heal this little part of the discontent that I have in my spirit, or of, the, of this little piece of me. And he's saying, no, I want the whole thing. I want to rewalk this journey that you wished had never happened with you, so that you can actually see my face in it. Whoa! Then the seeking stops. And then we just become bogus seekers. When seekers seek, they find. What are you looking for? You call yourself a seeker. What have you found? What have you found? Jesus is what you are seeking. And you might say, you don't know me that well. You're right, I don't. 
But that's what the scriptures tell us. Right? It's where God is that you must be. Without Christ, without Christ, there is no center point. And you will be forever seeking and never finding. For every person in this room, Jesus is who you are seeking. You might find lots of other lovers to lie with. You might find lots of other idols to worship. You might find lots of other relationships to bandage the artery that's bleeding. But when it comes down to it, this is about you and Jesus. And if you seek, you will find. If you seek, you will find. What is Jesus saying to you? Whom do you seek? And you can be the blackest sinner soldier in the world coming to kill the king of kings. And Jesus' question is, whom do you seek? And you can be the most tender Jesus follower that has ever, <coughs> excuse me, that has ever existed. And Jesus is asking you, whom do you seek? Whom are you seeking? Seek for me, and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. That's what Easter is about. Because you cannot seek a dead person. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then our faith would be in vain because there would be no one to seek. He would be dead. But Jesus is alive so that you and I can seek and find. So are you thirsty? Come to the well and drink. Are you hungry? Then come and eat of Christ. There is no love or other source of peace or relationship that will ever meet the seeking of your heart. And God is so worthy of us. He is so worthy of you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Whom do you seek? Seek and you will find. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the beauty of this deep, deep, deep truth. God, make us people who seek your face. God, make us people who seek after you, whose hearts are after you. God, that we would see you for who you truly are. For every person here, Father, expose our own hearts to us and by your grace wash over them so that by your grace we seek you, and we seek your face. And we are healed by you and brought to true faith in you. 
God, expose our excuses and the other things that we use to seek other things. God, in your tender and compassionate way, come into the dark, deep places that we're afraid of, the experiences that we had, the wounds. God, come into there. God, draw out your children by your grace that we might truly seek you and truly find you. For every person here, God, I pray for a wholehearted seeking. Wholehearted seeking. And by our seeking, that we would truly find. Thank you, Father, for your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. I don't know what you're seeking or who you're seeking. But if you'd like somebody to pray with you about what it is that you are seeking or who it is that you want to find, we'd love to pray with you after the service. And you feel free to come down here. Some of us will be down here. And, um, and if you want to talk or pray together about the seeking in your heart, feel free to come down. We would love to minister with you in that way. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God, we thank you for your victory over sin, death, and the grave. God, we thank you for the gift of your victory to your children that you have given your victory for us to stand and walk in. God, may we seek you. God, may we seek you. And for every person here, turn us to you. Captivate us by yourself, by the depth of your beauty, the marvel of your grace. You have said to us, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, we do seek. So I bless you today on this Easter with those words again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen and amen.